And this morning I introduce to you our brother in Christ, Dr. David Galetta, and uh, he needs no introduction to all of us who are a regular part of the church because he's one of the missionaries that we support. He's been an associate pastor here. But I think that it bears simply this word of introduction that I hope we know when we hear him preach and the depth of his understanding and knowledge that he has and the passion that he has for the word and for Christ and the amount of devotion he expresses in studying that we are deeply blessed to have a man like David preaching to us. We appreciate it. And the best way we can show our devotion is not by a hand of applause. It's by good listening and good learning. God bless you. Good morning. It, it is a delight to bring God's Word. I, I, I don't get to preach here nearly as often as I want, and as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's not so much because I don't get the invitations, it's just because I, I'm not here enough. So I, I've had this passage on my mind for a long time, and I'm finally getting to preach it, and I hope I can do it justice. I'm asking you to turn in your Bibles, your phones, or just listen to Isaiah chapter 64, right about in the middle of your Bibles, uh, page 623 if you're using a pew Bible. This is the English Standard Version I'm using, and it's the entire chapter, it's 12 verses, Isaiah 64. This is God's Word. Isaiah writes, inspired by God himself, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as in fire kindles brushwood, and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us much in the hand of our iniquities, made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Pray with me again, would you? Lord, this is your word, written thousands of years ago, and yet it's relevant to us, especially as you would apply it now 
by your spirit. So we ask that you would do that and that you would speak through me and around me as necessary, that you would go directly to our minds and hearts and exalt yourself. Teach us exactly what you would have us know right now and apply the message we ask to the glory of your name. Amen. I've noticed in driving around on highways, and it's particularly in certain parts of the country, that there's a series of billboards that have supposed quotes from God. Have you seen them? There are a number of them. Here's one. If you must curse, please use your own name. Or keep using my name in vain and I'll make rush hour longer. Or I've seen this on church uh, signs as well. You know, that love your neighbor thing, I meant that. And then the one I borrowed from my sermon, don't make me come down there. Now, many of us as children heard that line from our fathers. Uh, I did, and it was no empty threat. Uh, Maybe you used it yourself. I hope I didn't use that. Um, But most of us are familiar with it. Now, as far as those highway signs, I, I have a rather mixed reaction. I'm not sure what their purpose actually is. Is it meant to be evangelistic? I, I really can't imagine that any of those signs inspired anybody to pull along the side of the road and accept Jesus on the spot. I suppose it's meant to get a chuckle or something like that. Uh, I, I would err on the side of caution ever trying to put words in God's mouth on a sign, a movie, a book. A song. I, I just don't think that's a wise thing to do. In any case, I, I know it's supposed to be funny. Uh, don't make me come down there. Would, would God say such a thing? C- could he possibly say that? Well, we understand that it, it, it is meant to be a threat, and, and God did many times through Scripture warn his own people that he was going to come judge them as covenant breakers if they did not turn from their ways. And many times in the prophets, we also see the warnings about what he's going to do to the other nations. So there is that sense of the threat, I am going to come. And of course, we all know, and everybody knows and jokes about it, about final judgment. So the idea of God coming down there, it's really not so far-fetched. But in this passage, is God coming down, is it a threat? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing to say, oh, that you would come down? I suppose it depends on your perspective, doesn't it? What I want to say to you is, if you are part of God's people, having God come down is not a bad thing, actually. Saying, oh, that you would come down, it's not a bad thing. And and that's what I want to show you today, that God coming down is, is actually quite a good thing. The first, we actually see three times not all so explicitly, where God is invoked, come down. And strangely enough, this morning, they don't all start with the same letter. God, come down, come down. And it begins that you would come down and judge the enemy. Because that's what the, first, that's what the, the passage begins, that you would come down. You know, as this passage begins, and the context of this whole chapter is that Israel is facing exile. I say Israel. Technically, it's the southern kingdom of Judah. But they're facing exile for something they definitely deserved. And they're in despair. 
They're in a foreign land, and they know that they have deserved it. And Isaiah, a righteous man, is writing this, and he knows that they deserved it. And when you read Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept, we know that they even took children from their mothers and dashed them against the stones. They experienced horrible things. And obviously, they want Babylon to be judged. And in fact, the prophecies promise that Babylon would be judged. And so Israel, Judah, says, Oh, that you would judge Babylon, that you would make the mountains shake and come down, and that they would tremble in their little uniforms. Oh, that just to, just to see you would be enough to make them melt. Take vengeance on them, O oh Lord. And I think we can understand that if we're honest. Isn't it a natural thing for us to say, Oh, Lord, judge our enemies. Go get them. Defend us. Because those who oppress are doing evil things. And even though they deserve to be oppressed, Israel, okay, it, they are still being oppressed by an evil, evil empire. Let me ask you, what is the right response that we should have as we see evil, arrogant, wicked nations or individuals doing injustice? What should be our response? We should be angry, should we not? We actually should ask God for justice. We should be angry. We should be outraged. When we see a shooting, when we read about that, we should be upset. We should be angry. You know, most of us in the Western world, unless we come from a foreign nation, we haven't experienced very much, you know. I mean, how many of us have lived through a genocide? How many of us have actually experienced se severe injustice? We may have experienced some racism, but compare that to the tribalism of many nations in Africa. Compare that to what has gone on in many other nations in terms of just absolute wiping out of people and constant war. I just got an email from one of my students uh, who told me his assignment was going to be a little bit late because of the war. I'm thinking, <laughs> I just don't get emails like that every day. This, this is reality for some people. You remember 9-11? You remember how outraged we felt about that? Because suddenly what? It hit home. And suddenly we're aware. This isn't right. And there was outrage. we got to go get them. Suddenly, injustice becomes real when it hits home. We're upset when we see it around the world, but when it hits home. And when it's really personal, I mean, even when somebody cuts us off, when, something, when someone does something to our family, something terrible, we are outraged. So we do understand that. And when it becomes personal, it becomes very real. And what is the right response? I was always told two wrongs don't make a right. That didn't impress me as a kid. And I've never really grown out of that. It still bothers me. And you know what? I'm not sure that that's necessarily a problem. I mean, we know that Jesus told us, you know, turn the other cheek and pray for those that persecute you. I read in Revelation 6.10 where the souls of the martyrs who are beheaded cry out to God, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You know, Scripture affirms the right of the state 
to bring justice rather than the individual. So the idea that we want justice is actually not a wrong thing as long as we seek justice in the right place. Who is it that is to bring justice? God. Because vengeance is the Lord's. You know, for the believer, that's our hope, actually. That's the way we live with horrors in the world. That's the way we live when atrocities happen because we know that God will make it right. God will right every wrong, pay every debt. He will do that, and it is not up to us to do that. I have no idea how atheists and humanists can live with atrocities because they can't stamp out every wrong. They can't possibly do it. Now, I'm not saying that we should not fight injustice. Please don't get me wrong about that. But we can live with that because we have the hope that God will make it right. It's right for us to say, oh, Lord, that you would come down and right every wrong that you would do that. That's a good prayer. That's actually a good prayer. Oh, Lord, we long for you to do that. Yes, sometimes it's a personal thing, but we really do long for our God to make all things right. That's the right thing to pray. We do long for our God, because he is a just and holy God. It is not for us to seek to correct the wrongs done against us. Yes, fight for injustice at the corporate, the social level, that's fine, but we live with the hope that God will make it right. So come down, O Lord, and judge. Yes, we do pray that, and that's fine. That's the first thing. The second thing, we get down uh, to verse 3, and it says, O Lord, When you did come down, you did awesome things that we did not expect. Now, most commentators believe that's referring probably to the time in Egypt. But I think it really refers probably to all of biblical history. And I hope you know your biblical history to know maybe some of the things that that's referring to. See what the Lord did in Egypt. Look how he delivered his people. Look at the plagues he brought on Egypt and how he even separated so that the plagues did not affect Israel, but only on Egypt. And then look, and when he wiped out the eldest son on the whole land, but protected those whose doorposts had the blood of the lamb, the Israelites who obeyed. Look at the mighty things that this God did. Look at the way that he parted the Red Sea and then brought the water back. Over. What kind of God does these things? Brought manna from heaven and water from rocks Who ever heard of a God that does these kinds of things? He brought the law and wrote it on a stone, but not just Exodus. This is a God who brought down fire from heaven when Elijah prayed. This this is a God who constantly fights for his people. Several times we read where God says, Stand still. I will fight your enemies. When Hezekiah prays, Sennacherib's, army from Assyria is wiped out in their sleep. They do nothing but pray, and God does it. What kind of a God does these things? No one has ever heard of a God who fights, who acts for his people like this God. Come down and do these things. Israel's saying, do it again, Lord. Do it again. You've been, so, you've been silent for so long. We're suffering. Do this again. What kind of a God does these things for those who wait for his people. What does that mean to you? 
You know, pagan cultures, I mean, almost every culture has a religion of some type, but compare the God of a pagan culture to the God of Israel, the God of Christianity. You know, pagan cultures, they believe that if we can just do what we need to do, we can get the God or gods to do what we want him to do. And so they must work and work and serve and find the right sacrifice and please in order to get the God to send rain, to send fertility, to do these different things. That's not a God who works for his people. That's a God who responds to the work of his people. This is, we have a God who works for his people, not for our benefit, not that we might have comfort and health and wealth, but that we might have greater things. This is a God who works salvation for his people. Our God, Scripture tells us, before time began, planned salvation, planned that he would send his only son to save. So if you know Jesus Christ, do you realize that I won't even say before you were born, but before anybody was born, he planned that you would be saved. And everything that brought about your salvation, he did. So when you decided to follow Jesus, when you walked the aisle, when you raised your hand, whatever you did, he did that. This is the God who acts for those who wait for him. God has ordered all your days, everything, the difficult things, the easy things, the wonderful things, all of the things God does and continues to do for your good and for his glory. There's no other God who acts like this, who acts like these. So Paul picks up on this passage since ancient times, no, no ear has heard, no eye has seen. Well, Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. You probably recognize that verse because Paul writes that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And most people think Paul's talking about heaven, sort of. Paul's talking about the wonders of salvation and, and, and the, the gifts of God and the spiritual blessings. We can include heaven in there. But Paul is playing on Isaiah 64 and saying, this is the God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him, who love him. Come down and do the things that you used to do. It's a good prayer. This is a God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Are you waiting for the Lord? Do you wait on Do you even know what that means? Do you know what that means? Waiting on the Lord often means being silent and saying, I, I trust you, Lord. I'm going to pray for this and pray for this and pray for this. I'm going to wait for you to do what you do. It's not demanding that God acts in the way that you want him to because he works for us. He works good for us. And it's not always exactly the way we want it to. It's not a matter of praying a specific prayer in Jesus' name and expecting the Lord to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I will do precisely that. This is a God who acts on behalf of us for our good and for his glory. Maybe you're not asking for the right things. Have you thought of that? What are you asking for? Are you asking that God be glorified in your life? Now, the other possibility, of course, is that 
you're ignoring sin in your life, and you're simply expecting God to act on your behalf because we move now to the third point, and we see that Isaiah knows that there's a problem. He says, you know, you meet those who are are righteous in verse 5. He says, you meet those who are righteous, but you know what? We're not righteous. We're not righteous. You come down. He doesn't say come down. You meet those who are righteous. But then the rest of the passage basically says, but boy, are we toast. Because we are not righteous. We are about as wicked as can be. And he includes all of mankind. Nobody is righteous in your sight. Nobody seeks after you. And Isaiah is even including himself. I mean, do you remember in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah enters the temple and he sees God on the throne? He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah is probably the most righteous person in Israel at this point. And he includes himself and says, I'm so wicked. I'm so filthy. Come down and forgive us. Come down and restore us, Isaiah says. Will you not save us? Will you ignore us forever? But he knows the problem. If God came down at that moment, Isaiah's kind of worried that they might be in the same situation as God's enemies. In the face of God's holiness. If God came down right now, would you be ready to face him? If God came down physically right now, would you tremble and fear? Would you run? Or would you be ready to face him? Because on your own, in your sin, the only smart thing to do would be to cower and run because you probably just melt in your own sin. Even our righteousness is like filthy rags. Okay? The translation actually is a menstrual cloth. Okay? It's meant to be very unclean, ritually unclean, repulsive. Okay, that's how our righteousness is. All the things we would try to do, mostly because of our bad motivation, the, the things we would try to do, do not please the Lord. There's nothing we can do. So what does Isaiah count on? You're our Father. You have made the covenant. You have made the initiative. And this is Isaiah in the Old Testament speaking as much as he understands. You're a faithful God. And I, you know what? I'm going to count on that, Isaiah says. I think I can count on it, he says. Will you save us? Will you rescue us? Will you still come down? Remember us again. Well, God did rescue his people. He did bring them back. But it was never quite the rescue Israel hoped. Because when they did go back, they remained under oppression. The kingdom was not really restored. The Messiah did not come. There was no kingdom again. They remained under foreign oppression forever. They they, they did not feel fully restored. Had God fulfilled his promise? I hope you know the answer. He did come down. He did come down. The problem is when he did, they didn't receive him. God came down in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity came down, took Flesh and his name was Jesus. He came down. He opened the heavens. He came down. He became a man. He became one of us. And he lived among sinners. He dealt with sin all the time, but he didn't know sin until the cross. And on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin. That's a mysterious thing it says. He became sin 
So on the cross, Jesus, we want to talk about like representative. He, he became sin so that all who believe in him would, would become what? Who can finish that? He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So the righteousness that Isaiah says we don't have, we Christians on the other side can say, yes, we do, praise the Lord. We are righteous because Jesus came down and he took our sin that we might have the righteousness of God. So we don't have to say now, oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We say, praise God, you have. You have come down. And so we can meet with him. And we don't need to be afraid now when we talk about God coming down. So now we look for the final return Judgment Day, which we do not need to fear. We can actually look forward to when God does come and make all things right and when he does take us to be with him. And that, then when, we, when he wipes away every tear, when he destroys death and sickness and sorrow, because this is a God who works for his people. So who has ever heard of a God like this who works on behalf of those who wait for him. Pray with me, would you? Our Father and our God, in Christ we do not fear your coming down. We long for you to come down again, but we know that by your Spirit you are here. We need you desperately. We need you to reveal yourself to us sometimes because we forget how close you are. And so, Lord, we turn to you once again, confessing our sin, confessing our need of you, but praising you that you act on behalf of those who wait for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.